From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio, science and technology that is accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Katie Mullally, and this morning our colleague John Wells speaks with Neil deGrasse Tyson, who has co-written To Infinity and Beyond, A Journey of Cosmic Discovery, with his podcast Star Talks, senior producer Lindsay Walker. Then, as much as you think it's just a craving, sugar is an addiction. We speak with neuroscientist Dr. Nicole Avina, who pioneered research on sugar addiction and has a new book on the subject called Sugarless. These guests, when we return, you're listening to Cool Science Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm John Wells. Our next guest is Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's a renowned astrophysicist and best-selling author who we've spoken with in the past about his books, Cosmic Queries, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, and Starry Messenger. Neil's back for a fourth time to talk about his new book, To Infinity and Beyond, A Journey of Cosmic Discovery, that he co-wrote with Star Talk senior producer, Lindsay Walker. In addition to all of that, most importantly, he's the official astrophysicist for Cool Science Radio. Neil, welcome back to the program. And that's probably my favorite title, to be the astrophysicist for Cool Science Radio. <laughs> well, I love to hear that. Mm-hmm. I love to hear that. Mm-hmm. Neil, as we're starting this conversation, I just want to do a quick shout out to National Geographic. Infinity and Beyond is a Nat Geo book. And, you know, every time Nat Geo gets involved in something, the images and the illustrations, they're just beautiful. They don't, they don't do ugly. Right. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a beautiful. I have to. I have to. Even though I wrote it, I have to say it, it's a beautiful book. I would say that even if I were not its co-author, the page quality and the images and the layout and the, it's just it's beautiful to hold and to look at and to read mm. and, so that's the part of that's the third book in the partnership between my podcast Star Talk, and National Geographic Books. So. They've, they've been an excellent partner in that regard. Absolutely. This is a different book for you, a departure from the previous books that you've written. Uh, tell us why you wrote this book. It was, we realized that often when you read about scientific discovery, you read about the discoveries. Oh, uh, this person discovered that in this year under these conditions. And most of our understanding of the history of discovery is you're actually surfing the hits and you don't see the misses, all right? You don't see the fits and starts that we went through to get to where we are today. So to infinity and beyond, the the title, of course, evokes, you know, Buzz Lightyear, of course, but but the way it's invoked is here you are, say, with a dream. I want to accomplish whatever, okay? I want to ascend into the atmosphere, let's say. Well, how would you do that? Well, you could just jump but you don't stay airborne for very long. Oh, well, you can jump off a cliff, then you're airborne, but then you die. Like, what do you do? How do you even think about this? And it was a long time before people figured out, for example, that hot air balloons can be made large enough to carry people, okay? Uh, The very first among them, they did the right thing. They said, let's not test it on ourselves. Let's test it on farm animals. (laughs) So they sent a sheep, a duck, and a chicken were the first aeronauts to go up in a in a hot air balloon. But this happened in recent centuries. It didn't happen a thousand years ago. So the idea of ascending into the sky and possibly beyond 
was a deferred dream. Yeah, it was in legend with Icarus. Uh, we all know the Icarus legend. He built wings of wax and flew too close to the sun. The wings melted and he fell to his death. And so do you say, all right, I'm never going to try that again. Or do you instead say, maybe I'm going to make my wings out of a substance other than wax. <laughs> what kind of brain wiring do you have when you come to that problem? Is it, are you the kind that just gives up when you see the failure? Or do you keep trying? So to infinity and beyond is an exploration of what it is to stand flat-footed on Earth, look up, and dream about the universe, and find out what we did to accomplish those dreams right on up to the physical landing on the moon, which is the farthest we've ever sent humans. But then our minds have taken us beyond that. What is the nature of the solar system, the galaxy, the universe, the multiverse? So the infinity part is whatever seems impossible at any given moment. And the beyond infinity are the accomplishments that fill the space after you've arrived there. And if you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are speaking with Neil deGrasse Tyson, who co-wrote with Lindsay Walker, To Infinity and Beyond, A Journey of Cosmic Discovery. The intersection of science and popular culture is, is really an interesting and fun place to uh, start. What has Hollywood gotten right, and where have they strayed from our understanding of science? Yeah, that's a great question, it's because in, in my podcast, Star Talk, it is, the, it is a three, there are three strands that are braided together. One of them is science, of course. Another one is pop culture, and the other is humor. What we found is that when we braid those just the right way, people come back for more. Mm. And that DNA is also expressed in To Infinity and Beyond. So as we talk about different achievements that have been made by crazy people, engineers, scientists, risk takers, Typically, there's a movie that addresses that very same challenge or that exploits the discoveries of that challenge. And so throughout the book, we comment on things you've seen in pop culture, be it a TV show, a movie, a legends, or something that everyone accepts is true but maybe isn't, but it works anyway for our ambitions. All of this that I count as pop culture, uh, we will dip into that throughout the book so that you can get a sense of it. I'll just give an example. The hot air balloon floats because the average density of the air in the balloon is less than the density of the air outside of the balloon. So when you're in a gravity field, light things float and everything sink. Okay. The Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> the Hulk, the Incredible Hulk, he starts out as mild-mannered David Banner, who is a medical doctor. Then he gets angry, and then he becomes the Hulk this huge thing, big green, ugly Hulk. Now, how would that happen? He only has the amount of mass that's in his body as the mild-mannered doctor. So if he puffs up to that size, he'd have the density of like a beach ball. And he could just kick him down the road and he would bounce down, bounce down the boulevard, yeah. right? And so, all right, well, maybe he's not less dense, maybe he has the same density, that means his mass has to increase. Where does he get the mass from? Well, you can get mass from energy. We know that from Einstein. Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared equals mc squared. Well, if he were to do that, he'd have to suck all the energy out of the county he was, all the energy, convert it into mass, make body tissue out of it, 
and then kick butt or whatever it is he, he was smash okay and then when he's done hand all that energy back so these are little things if you're going to stick with the laws of physics they put constraints on your storytelling which in that case would make it very hard to have a realistic hulk Boy, that's for sure. Uh, are there any sci-fi movies that really grab your attention, or do you have a favorite sci-fi movie? Well, yeah. By the way, I'm not, I'm not as annoying as you might think I would be. If you think of inviting me to your movie, don't disinvite me because you're worried that I'll just grumble the whole time. No, yeah. I can totally enjoy films in whatever is the fantasy land they put me in. It doesn't mean I won't talk about them later, but I won't talk about them during the film. Sure. You know who complains about films during the film? Or people who read the book first. Leave them out. Leave them in the right. street. Okay? Right. They, they, if you read the book and you like the book, leave the movie alone. Let the rest of us enjoy the movie. Now, that being said, I, I can rank films for how accurate their science is. Very high on the list is The Martian. This is the Andy Weir novel, The Martian. That had a marquee director, marquee actors, had a good budget. And it it was very careful in how much science it portrayed and how much of it it got right. Couple of things it got wrong, but I'll give them a whole pass given how much they else they got right. So the Martian science was elevated to such an important feature that you could think of science as a character unto itself. You know, they had the the they had the perfunctory scene where the rescue astronauts are touching the video screen on their space because one of them has a kid that's recently yeah, born. Sure. Oh, mommy, daddy, come home soon, be safe. And that's supposed to be a tender moment. I, I get it, but I care how Mark Watney, who's left for dead on Mars, I want to know how he does not die today. That's what right. bit of inventive, innovative solutions did he bring to bear on his risk of death? That's what I wanted to hear about. I didn't care yeah. about these family videos. So that's the power of the director, the storytelling, the editing, to elevate science to such a high level. And after that movie, it had been bandied about a little bit, but that with that movie, for sure, science graduated from being a noun to also being a verb. Yeah. And, and, and the line was... I'm going to have to science the shit out of this, okay, <laughs> in order to stay alive. Yeah. So science was a verb, and I, and I loved it. Another interesting movie was Deep Impact. In Armageddon, they're both movies where, you know, Earth is about to end from an asteroid. In Armageddon, the asteroids all had GPS aim. Like, one of them hit the Chrysler building in New York, and, and one went in through the front door of... Grand Central Terminal and hit the clock in the middle yeah. of the, the meeting area. And it's like, really? Look how much Earth is not occupied by city. Right. You're going to hit New York and you're going to hit my my monuments in New York? Uh, whereas Deep Impact, they said, we still have to destroy New York, but let's do it more realistically. So it hits the ocean. And then a tsunami takes out New York. That's right. Right? You can still do it, but let's be a little more authentic. That movie had good advisors, and so the physics was, I don't want to call it entirely authentic, but certainly believably authentic. You know, back to The Martian, I'm not sure if the catastrophe that left Matt Damon's character behind would have happened in the first place. If no, the, it wouldn't have at all. I in mean, fact, the atmosphere is 1%. Exactly, know. exactly. 
you know, Mars is famous, infamous for its dust storms, where when dust storms kick up, you can't see detail on the surface. It's very, it obscures yeah. very effectively whatever it is you might be trying to see. Mars has an atmosphere, it has weather, it has seasons, it has ice caps, it has all of the above. And in the film The Martian, they gave him up for dead because I forgot exactly why there was some accident, but then the storm is kicking up and they have to take off because the rocket is rocking, all right, from the winds. And if they don't take off now, they all die. And so you presume Mark Watney is dead and you take off to save yourselves. Okay, they did this and Mark Watney is alive. All right. But Mars atmospheric pressure, as you correctly noted, is about 1% that of Earth pressure. 1%. So 100 mile an hour winds on Mars. Be a whisper. Yeah, it'd be a whisper. It'd be a whisper. I could whisper into my microphone and be like, be a gentle breeze on. Matt, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, so I told that to Andy Weir, and he was self-aware of this, but yeah. he needed a mechanism to leave someone for dead yeah. on Mars, and that that's why I gave him a hall pass. Well, let's keep going with Matt Damon. I mean, his character in Interstellar kind of goes nuts. He tries to steal McConaughey's character's spaceship, which is spinning like a top. Matthew McConaughey's character is able to spin his craft exactly, identically to line up with this spinning other spaceship that he needs to dock with. And I don't know how that happened. Maybe just some really good technology, but they docked successfully. It's, it was kind of hard to believe, though. Well, and it was so a, a that's good the, scene. That's the boosted version of what we saw in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Mm. In that film, 1968, imagining the future in the year 2001, there's a space shuttle flown by Pan Am, okay, docking with a rotating space station, and there's a there's a bay that it has to pull into, but it has to line up with that. So they were very careful about how they did that. The space shuttle comes up, and it sees the rotating space station. Then it starts to rotate, and now they're both rotating together, but you don't see that. What you see is the stars rotating in the background. Right. Okay. They they did right. it brilliantly. So they match it up and then you come in and dock. Now, now we're 40, 50 years later. How are you going to portray that same scene? Well, it's going to be an emergency. It has to be happening faster. You know, you have marquee actors and is and so yeah, I thought of 2001 when I saw that scene. Yeah. Plus, we have to believe he's an expert pilot. That That's right. Well, he had that robot with him who was pretty smart. So, uh, oh yeah, did did you remember the name of that robot? Uh, his name was I don't. Yeah, have it was it. written on the side. His name is Kip. Kip, Kip which Thorne. is the first name of Kip Thorne, yeah. who is a an astrophysicist at Caltech, who was Advised. also executive producer on the film. Yeah, good for Kip. That's yeah. great. You know this uh, this whole thing about about the Mexican aliens corpses that they that they found back in september what's the latest with that have, have scientists gotten a hold of that yet have they have they shared remains with scientists so that they can take a good look so i got cars i received correspondence from one of the alien wranglers mm -hmm. okay who said i saw your comments in the news because my comments were unlike what happened in the american congress unlike what happened in the American Congress, where we have people testifying that they have aliens in a locked box 
that no one can see. In Mexico, they brought forth the aliens in Congress, put them on display. And right I said, there. that's what you need. Bring out the aliens. Yeah. Don't tell us it's in a lockbox and you have to swear that you... No, just bring them out. That's what they did in Mexico. So I said, that's a start. Now we want to analyze these remains. And what the correspondence was, it invited me to see their analysis, okay? All of their extensive analysis. And I said two things. First, I'm not a biologist nor a biochemist who really should be the ones who see this analysis. But more importantly, you need to provide tissues, samples of these corpses for other labs to investigate. That's how we establish a scientific truth, not by how earnestly you swear that you are telling the truth about your own work. It's not how we do things in science. You know, something is true not because we presented it in front of Congress and swore that it was true. So I said all this, but I have not heard back. Once I said it should be put up for peer review, analysis, and shared with other labs around the world. When we brought moon rocks back in the Apollo missions, samples went around the world for everybody to investigate. That's we how also, you do science. We also did something really smart back in 1969, and we did something pretty smart with the asteroid recovery samples, and that's that we took half of the sample and we locked it away in a lockbox for 50 years, knowing that technology in the future would allow us to do a better job at, at looking at those. So they're, they're now looking at moon rocks with new technology, and they're going to be doing the same thing with those asteroid samples. I, I had not appreciated how much time that... I knew something about that, but thanks for reminding me, because we just passed the 50-year mark for the 1972 launches, the, the Apollo 17. Yeah. So, yeah, that makes complete sense. It's very humble to say, whatever, however modern my tools are today, in 50 years, they'll be moderner. <laughs> and so... It really is. Yeah. And... Uh, the folks, because I spoke to the people at NASA that were running those programs uh, for the asteroid recovery uh, samples, and they just, uh, you know, took a page from the Apollo book, and it was it was just brilliant. I wanted to ask you about this when when you and I were uh, speaking last. It was about your book, Starry Messenger, and on our program, Cool Science Radio, we've spoken many times that the scientific method, well, it's not perfect, but it sure does work well. And if a scientist has data that a theory is based on, that scientist should then do everything possible to disprove or his or her theory. And, you know, humanness, we're easily swayed by our own biases, and we've got confirmation bias to get us to another level of, of confusion. And uh, you said in the conversation that we had, what if we took the scientific process and we applied that to today's problems? And I just thought that that was really interesting. And uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. That's that was the that's the thrust of that entire book, the Starry Messenger: Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization. It's what civilization looks like when you apply sort of rational thinking and the methods and tools of science to decisions and even points of conflict that people have. That for some, not all, but but for many such points of conflict. They're, they're lessened, they're softened, or they evaporate entirely in the presence of rational analysis. And the book is, is, is rife with examples of such cases, yes. Uh, one of the tenets of relativity is that light speeds the speed limit of the universe. And, and uh, in your most recent book that we're talking about today, 
Uh, you talk about Gerald Feinberg, uh, who came up with these FTL, faster than light particles called tachyons. And then there, you know, this tardion thing is fascinating, slower than light speed, which is a great name for a class of particles. It gives a whole new meaning to tardy. <laughs> It's 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 just interesting, but I hadn't heard of tachyons before. Okay, yeah, yeah it comes from the Greek uh, root uh, tachyos, tachyos, meaning fast, and that's where we get the the word tachometer. You know, you're measuring the tachometers measure piston speed. Yeah, you know, the, what do you call it? Cycles per second of uh -huh. the engine, uh, and uh, no, so the speed of light being a limit. We have never observed anything to go faster than light. And it got codified into Einstein's relativity. So it's not that the universe is obeying relativity, is that relativity is describing the pre-existing universe where we've never seen anything go faster than light. If you put something faster than light in Einstein's equations, you can ask what happens. And what happens is time ends up going backwards. Mm. So people hypothesize, well, maybe we can't move faster than the speed of light if you started out slower but suppose you only ever existed faster than the speed of light then you'd live in this sort of netherland of the theory where the formula still works but you have these interesting negatives in there like negative time but you have to thus, keep that speed as long thus, as you well well so so no to for attacking on it would take infinite energy to slow it down to the speed of light mm. So it's the, the opposite of what happens to try to get something to the speed of light. Then we said, well, if they, if these things are real, what would they look like? How would we detect them? We detect them going backwards through time while we go forwards in time. And there'll be a point where we meet in, in our mutual present. All right. But we've yet to, with clever ideas about how to detect them, we've never detected them. So right now it's, it's pure fancy. We started Cool Science Radio 11 years ago to shine a real bright light on the um, women and men in science. And we tried to, uh, you know, present the program for the curious layperson. If we could understand it, they could understand it. Because Lynn and I are not trained in STEAM. Uh, we're just, you know, curious people. I wanted to ask you, who do you think the science educators are that you believe do a good job of explaining some of the heady concepts of physics to curious lay people. Let me separate the kingdom there, okay? Mm. There are people who are teachers, yes. educators, and they'll teach you content that is either emerging or stuff that you should know, that you might have known but didn't, that you were, were you asleep in science class that day. But then there's a whole other thing that involves how is your brain wired for thought? And that is an aspect of science literacy that is not generally celebrated. It, I, I'll give it by example. If someone comes up to you and says, I want to sell you these crystals, and if you rub them together, it will soothe your ailments. Okay? So you being you, what would you tell the person? Well, what are these crystals? What are they made out of? Uh, what do they do? Okay. Uh, so, what so can you good. show me? That takes brain energy to even go there. Okay, there are two zero brain energy replies. One of them is, really? Great. You know, how much are they? Here's my money. That takes no brain energy. The other brain energy is, oh, this is just BS. Get out of here. Stop wasting my time. That is equally as intellectually lazy. The real investment of your mind in this exercise is just what you said. Well, what are they made of? What is the mechanism by which they operate? 
What is the evidence that they will do what they say you do? Can you cite that evidence? I want to see that backed up. And you're doing this, and the person will walk away because you're not apparently their target. They want someone to just absorb it. My only point is that educators, I think at their best, yeah, they'll give you some education in there, but they'll stimulate you to want to learn more and help to establish a brain wiring that promotes curiosity. And you'd be surprised when you're curious, you're not just happy with one explanation of things, or you're not just, you, you'll you always think a little beyond whatever that bit of information was that was just handed to you. So today, there's many scores of people, not hundreds, but scores of people who have YouTube channels, who have um, uh, Instagram platforms that are enthusiastic about science. They're either educators who specialize in science, scientists who specialize in education, and they're all out there on this landscape. Right. Teaching people science. And I delight in that because ultimately one day I just want to exit the back door <laughs> of this space in such a way that no one even notices I left because everyone is so taken and enchanted by the rest of everybody's efforts sure. to bring the universe down to earth. Neil, it's been a pleasure speaking with you this morning to Infinity and Beyond, a journey of cosmic discovery that you co-wrote with Lindsay Walker. We want to thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks. And thanks for always having me back. You do good work there, and it's a, a very important addition to people's exposure to science. So well, thanks thank for you, being Neil. there all those years. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware-Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. Our guest is world-renowned neuroscientist, Dr. Nicole Avina, who in fact pioneered research on sugar addiction. She's the first to study sugar addiction in the laboratory, and she's authored more than 100 scholarly journals and articles on the topic. Today, she is the world's leading expert on sugar addiction, and we're going to find out some new things that we didn't already know about sugar addiction. It's all in her new book called Sugarless. Dr. Nicola Vena, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Oh, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here to talk with you. Well, one of the things that caught me, you know, there's this discussion about what it, what substance is the most addictive, and I've heard that it's nicotine, but you say that it's actually sugar. Can you talk a little more about that? It's such an interesting question. I think a lot of it has to do with how do we define addiction? And there's just so many layers to that question in and of itself. But I think that when we think about whether or not something's addictive, we have you know different criteria in the medical community that need to be met in order for someone to be diagnosed as having a substance use disorder or an addiction to things like drugs or alcohol but i think we're getting into this new realm because now we have so many things that are in our everyday environment like food like the internet like you know gambling <laughs> that are pervasive and easy to get a hold of and what we're seeing from the research is that many of these things can also produce an addiction in some cases. And so I've been focused a lot on the sugar piece, but I think it really speaks to a larger question about how things in our everyday environment can also lead to addictions in many cases when, you know, we're looking at this from a different lens. So you've studied sugar addiction in the laboratory. You're a PhD. What is your PhD in? 
My PhD is in neuroscience and psychology. Yeah. So when you study something like sugar addiction in the lab, no doubt you're looking at things like dopamine triggers and things like that, especially with your background on psychology and neuroscience. Uh, is the dopamine rush that we get from sugar one of the bigger sort of components of the addiction, or is it something else in our physiology? I think that the dopamine component is important. It tends to be the one that we talk about the most, and I think that's just because when we think about addiction, we think about that extreme pleasure and reward and the high that often comes along with it. But I think that there are a lot of other aspects to this that are important to you know, discuss and, and acknowledge. Certainly, yes, that component, the dopamine response is something that we've seen in our studies that other researchers who've looked at this space have also been able to demonstrate in response to sugar and highly processed foods. But there's other things like withdrawal, for example. One of the components of addiction can often be a withdrawal state or a negative state when the substance isn't available. And what we've seen in our studies is that sugar withdrawal can happen. And it, it's something that, you know, can be experienced on the physical level where it can lead to lethargy, irritability, you know, just general crabbiness. And also on the neurochemical level with alterations in dopamine and other neurochemicals in the brain that are conclusive with what we would see if somebody were in withdrawal from something like drugs or alcohol. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, our guest is Dr. Nicole Avina. She is the author of Sugarless. So, Nicole, like with other addictions, like with alcohol, you know where it comes from, the beer, the wine, the vodka, or smoking, tobacco. But with sugar, it's pervasive in everything. How do we even start to address this addiction and what forms it comes in? I'm so glad you brought that up. That's something that I talk about in the book a lot because I think this is what makes sugar addiction so unique and so difficult. It's hidden in so many parts of our food environment. And in many cases, people are consuming sugar and they don't even realize it. It's you know used in a variety of different processed foods as a way to enhance the taste, but it's also used as a way to actually mask the bad taste that's associated with a lot of the preservatives and chemicals that end up in our highly processed foods these days. So I think this poses a unique challenge because individuals might be struggling with an addiction to something that they really can't get away from in many cases. So I think that's why it's so important that we raise awareness about our food supply and about how being dominated by all these processed foods with all this added sugar is really contributing to this major problem. One of the things that I recommend that people really do is to focus in on the nutrition labels because if you're unfamiliar with the different types of added sugar, the different names for added sugar, then you're not gonna realize whether or not the thing you're eating contains it. So it's really important to pay attention to those labels so they understand what's in the foods that we're eating. So how did something, I don't wanna say toxic, but this addictive and truly bad for us, which we'll get into later in the interview, how did this so easily pervade all of our food sources? You know, was it political? Did they not know? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that there's a lot of layers to this part of it. I mean, we've lived with sugar for centuries, right? I mean, if you think back to the Victorian times, for example, 
you know, sugar was a delicacy, but we'd only have it a few times a year. It was a rarity. It wasn't something that we had access to all the time. So if you flash forward now and look at our food environment, I mean, we are basically inundated with sugar. And there's a few different reasons why this has happened, why we've seen such a drastic change. First of all, sugar got cheaper. It's much easier to produce. There's ways in which we can, you know, get it into the masses and get it into our food supply. I also think that it's really been an issue of supply and demand in the sense that consumers have over time been wanting things to be sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. And in part, that's because the food industry has been slowly making things sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. And so we develop a tolerance to sweetness. And you can see this if you, you know, are somebody who is eating a lot of added sugar and regularly consumes those types of things, you might find that, you know, maybe a little bite of a cookie isn't going to satisfy your craving or satisfy your sweet tooth. You might need more and more and more to feel good from having that treat. And that's what's basically happening, I think, on the larger scale is that over time, you know, Americans have really just not been able to satisfy their sweet tooth. And we're slowly getting more and more tolerant to the taste of sugar, which means more and more of it is being added to our food supply at significant health costs. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. My uh, husband recently found out he has a high food sensitivity to sugar. And in a way, I'm I'm almost a little bit envious because I would love to have that get me off of sugar. I mean, he feels horrible when he eats sugar. You know, in, in figuring this out, he's reading labels all the time. And sugar is ubiquitous. It's even where it doesn't need to be. And I think that's something that, you know, many of us don't don't realize. You know, you said that com food companies are putting more and more sugar in. Is there any kind of movement? I see it occasionally to, you know, that people or companies are advertising, you know, 30% less sugar. How is that going over with the general population? Well, I think it's twofold. I think, you know, from a psychology standpoint, when something is marketed as having less sugar, I think it really depends on who the consumer is that you're targeting. Yeah. Obviously, the health conscious people are going to be attracted to something like that. But people who are really health conscious are probably also going to be a little suspicious. If it's less sugar, they're going to wonder, well, what else is in here to make it taste good? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the tricks that the food industry has been using lately is that because of the attention to the health dangers linked to added sugar, they've been utilizing more artificial sweeteners and non-nutritive sweeteners in food products in addition to added sugar. So it's really maintaining, if not elevating the sweetness of the products, because not now, only now do you have added sugar, but you also have layered onto that these other sweeteners. But it can be a way to market it as, you know, seemingly being healthier and yes, in many ways, okay, if it's going to reduce the amount of added sugar, that might bring down the amount of calories. But really, overall, I talk about this in my new book, Sugarless, the goal is to reduce our reliance on sweetness. These artificial sweeteners and these alternative sweeteners, they can play a role and they can be helpful in some cases to help wean yourself off of added sugar. 
But at the end of the day, if we really want to resolve the addiction and have our brains to not be dependent on this sweet craving all the time, then we really need to work on reducing our reliance on sweeteners in our diet in general. Mm -hmm. Can you go a little deeper into the neurological effects of sugar, what you found in all of your research? We've done quite a bit of neuroscience work in this space. And one of the things that has really stood out to me has been the effects that sugar has on the dopamine system. So one of the hallmarks of drugs of abuse is that every time someone takes a hit of a drug, if it's nicotine, if it's morphine, alcohol, you name it, it releases dopamine in the nucleus accumbens, which is part of our mesolimbic reward system. It's part of our pleasure system in the brain. And this is really what sets drugs and alcohol apart from a lot of other things that are out there. And that's one of the reasons why we can consider them to be addictive. Now, what's interesting about sugar is that sugar behaves the same way. And it's unique because typically foods in general don't do that to the dopamine system. If you eat, you know, a salad or, you know, have mashed potatoes or whatever it might be, it's not going to release dopamine in the way that we see happening with sugar. And so sugar acts more like a drug than a food when it comes to the brain. And in addition to the dopamine piece, we've also done a lot of work looking at the endogenous opioid system. And so in our brains, we have basically our, our own way to maintain and manage our pain through the release of opioids in the brain. If we hurt ourselves, you know, opioids will be released and it's sort of like our brain's own painkiller, if you will. And what we've seen is that sugar can also influence the endogenous opioid system. And so this is telling us not only that sugar is causing, you know, pleasure through the release of dopamine, but it's also causing pleasure through the brain opioid system. And so that part of it, I think, is important because it helps us to understand some of the use behind it. Because a lot of times what we're seeing is that people are using sugar to self-medicate to self-medicate their anxiety, to self-medicate stress, to self-medicate boredom. And it can be a powerful way to make people feel better. And that's part of the reason why I think we're seeing it being overused and abused so much. Well, Nicole, you talk about how the neurological changes, all of the um, physiological changes that it, that sugar causes within ourselves, especially younger people that are really getting addicted to sugar now, is there an evolutionary component to this? So the kids that they have, are they going to be even more addicted to sugar? And then will this just continue down the, down the road? Yeah, unfortunately, it does paint a rather bleak picture of the future. So we, we have an evolutionary desire to like sugar. Our ancestors, hunter and gatherers, way, way back, our way, way, way early ancestors, found that sweet was coated with being safe. So if you were wandering the forest, hopefully looking for a berry bush and you stumbled upon one, the sweet fruits were safe to eat. The sour fruits and the bitter fruits that had fallen to the forest floor and were you know, not really looking so great, those were not safe to eat. And so very early in life, we code sweetness as being associated with safety. And this happens immediately when babies are born. If we look at the components of breast milk, it tastes sweet. Baby formula these days, it tastes sweet. And so the very first thing that babies consume is sweet and 
it's associated with the bonding of their caregivers. Now, the problem we face these days is that we still have those primitive hunter-gatherer brains in many ways, where we have this really primal desire to enjoy things that taste sweet, even though we have them in abundance now, right? And that's really where the problem lies because we are still in that mentality of if something is sweet, it's safe, but it's no longer safe. It's no longer safe to consume something just because it's sweet. If anything, it's dangerous for your health. And I think that part about the future generations is that, you know, they're inheriting that hunter-gatherer mentality, but we're seeing from the research that there is an epigenetic effect here in that if women are consuming excess amounts of sugar during pregnancy, there's studies that have shown that it alters the fetal brains, the reward systems in fetal brains of the mothers will end up showing these alterations that are going to make them more likely to then, you know, want to have sugar or to um, show these alterations in the brain reward system that can be associated with addiction. So we have a really interesting situation where we have this sort of long-term evolutionary desire for sugar coupled with this more recent generational epigenetic change that's happening that is really setting up young people for a future where they're going to be more likely to be addicted to it. Well, in, in reading your book, so many harmful health effects of sugar. Let's first talk about, which I was fascinated with, the effects on brain health. Yes, this is something that I think we are fortunately hearing a lot more people want to learn about these days. You know, brain health used to be something that I think people put off worrying about until they got into their 50s and 60s and started worrying about, you know, forgetting their keys places and, you know, getting dementia and that kind of thing. But younger and younger people now are concerned about preserving their brain health and maintaining, you know, their cognitive abilities as they move through life. And one of the things that we've seen through the research is that sugar can negatively contribute to our brain health. It has been associated with poor outcomes and cognitive functioning. And in many cases, added sugar has been found to contribute to dementia and Alzheimer's disease in such a way that some researchers are even starting to talk about those conditions as a form of a type 3 diabetes because there is so much evidence that now suggests that they are tightly linked to sugar and insulin. And so one thing that we're learning about from lifestyle management perspective is that if you really want to preserve your brain health and be able to maintain clarity, be able to maintain focus, reducing added sugar is certainly the best way to do that from a dietary standpoint. And even in just speaking with people who, you know, have a history of eating a lot of sugar and then they, you know, make changes and are able to kind of work through reducing it and get it down to a, a much lower level. One of the things that people will most often talk about is how they feel this sense of clarity and focus that they haven't had in many, many years. And a lot of that has to do with the inflammatory aspects of sugar. And when they are able to take it out of their diet, their brain health just really improves. That's really fascinating. Um, in your new book, Sugarless, you uncover a it's a seven-step plan to help people both identify sugars where they may not know they exist, but then to conquer your addiction. And I'm I'm curious in your book how much you go into this inflammatory aspect of sugar and how does the average consumer of sugar know? <laughs> 
how much is a little and how much is a lot and how it ties into the effects of inflammation. Well, one of the things that I'm really proud of about the book is that I feel like it's very comprehensive. I, I really set out to, you know, not only focus just on the addiction piece, but really on the effects that sugar has on our physical and mental health in general. And so even if you're not necessarily feeling like you're struggling with an addiction per se to sugar, but you're concerned about the effects that sugar has on your health, then the book is definitely for you. Now, I think that one of the things that we think about when we try to determine how much is too much is the fact that we do have guidelines now. We hadn't for many, many, many years, but in 2015, we received government guidelines on how much is an appropriate amount of sugar to be consuming each day, added sugar. And what this guidelines suggest is it's between like seven to nine teaspoons per day. Now to put that into perspective, because not really easily can everyone visualize how much that is, we on average consume 22 teaspoons of added sugar each day. So right off the bat, we're consuming much, much more than is recommended. And in part, this is because if you look at, you know, many of the different food items that we tend to consume, it's really easy to have excess amount of added sugar, even before you walk out of your house in the morning. I mean, if you have, let's say a yogurt and um, milk in your coffee or creamer in your coffee, you know, you can have up to 100% of the recommended amount of sugar just in that alone, just because of how much sugar is added to so many of the products that we consume. So it is difficult, I think, for a lot of people to like really see the per perspective on how much is too much. But the reality is that we're all consuming probably more than we should be. And it's only in our benefit to cut back. When people cut back, one of the ways that they do it is to switch to just eating a lot of fruit. And when I do it, I admit, uh, it's easy for me to give up, but I do tend to then eat a lot of dates or, you know, bananas, really sweet fruit. How does that play into actually controlling the sugar addiction or not? That's one of the ways in which I suggest in the book that people can really manage their sugar addiction because fruit, yes, it does contain sugar, but it's not added sugar. Fruit contains sugar in a form that is packaged by nature in a way that it has fiber and it also has other nutrients that mitigate the effects that the sugar that's naturally there is going to have on the brain. And so I talk in the book about how, you know, one of your best friends, if you're dealing with sugar addiction or cravings, is to have fruit around. And again, you know, people are concerned that, oh, well, fruit also has sugar too. Maybe that's going to exacerbate my, my sweet tooth. And the reality is if you can satisfy your craving by, you know, having a couple of grapes or, you know, maybe eating an apple, it's most likely going to work because there's fiber in that product that you're eating. And it also takes some time to eat the actual fruit, right? You have to chew it or you have to cut it up. So there's some work involved. And the biggest piece of advice I will say about fruit, though, is to make sure that you're actually eating the fruit, not juicing. Fruit juice is just sugar <laughs> that is stripped of the fiber and all the good stuff. So you want to make sure that if you are having a sugar craving and you're using fruit to help you get through it, that's a great thing. But just make sure it's actual whole fruit, not the juice.
So, Nicole, let's go to the other end of the spectrum and talk about artificial sweeteners. been reading about artificial sweeteners and cravings and how they actually make things worse. So we can't just assume that we can use the artificial sweeteners to bypass any of this, can we? That's very true. I think that for most people, if you are trying to get away from added sugar, it's in your best interest to get away from the other sweeteners as well, because they are still going to activate the dopamine system. They're still going to cause you to have cravings. And yeah, it might save you 100 calories here and there, but studies show that over time, people who consume a lot of artificial sweeteners end up overeating. And so you're going to eat more calories later on. And so it's in your best interest to really just reduce our reliance on sweetness in general. Artificial sweeteners, if you use them as a crutch, if you're just like, if it's a choice between I'm going to have a soda or a diet soda, no matter what, I'm having one, go for the diet soda. But you really want to work toward reducing your reliance on all sweeteners. The book is Sugarless, and our guest is Dr. Nicole Avina. She pioneered research on sugar addiction, and she brings us now this new book, it's a seven-step plan to uncover hidden sugars, curb your cravings, and conquer your addiction. It's called Sugarless. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Cool Science Radio on KPCW, <clears throat> Park City at 91.7 and 88.1 FM in Summit County and 91.9 FM in Wasatch County. Tune in next week for John Wells' final interview with Cool Science Radio when he discusses how physicists are studying human consciousness and AI to unravel the mysteries of the universe. And then Lynn Ware Peak and I learn about how machine learning is being deployed in business operations. That's next Thursday on Cool Science Radio. And don't forget to go to the Cool Science Radio tab on kpcw.org to catch past shows and more information.